Good morning, witches. This is the Witch Daily Show, coming to you from New Orleans, with host Tanya Brown. Our episodes span about 20 minutes long to give you just a little pop of magic. So, tune in, take a deep breath, and enjoy. Let's get going. Good morning. It is March 27th, 2023. It is Monday. I am Tanya, and this is The Witch Daily Show. Today's episode is brought to you by Witch Way Magazine. So let's get your day going with a little magic. Our quote of the day is, without habit, the beauty of the world would overwhelm us. We'd pass out every time we saw actually saw a flower by Anthony Doerr, Four Seasons in Rome. So what are we drinking today? This month we are drinking Witch's Cupboard. Uh, This is a chamomile peppermint tea, and we talked about chamomile, we talked about peppermint. Now we're talking about vanilla this week. I love vanilla. We've talked about vanilla before, but we're going to talk a little bit about how you can use it, um, a little bit about how you can use it in magic, and today we're talking about the history. So this is from nationalgeographic.com, the history of vanilla. So by and large, Americans seem to like vanilla ice cream better than chocolate. There's a little waffling here. One source claims that actually it's Democrats who prefer vanilla while Republicans go for chocolate. And a Baskin-Robbins poll found that there's a substantial uh, contingent in the Southwest that shuns both flavors uh, in favor of mint chocolate chip. On the other hand, the International Ice Cream Association, which should know, puts vanilla at the top of the charts at the first choice of 29% of ice cream eaters, feebly followed by chocolate. Uh, which is at 8.9% and Butter Pecan, 5.3%, and Strawberry, 5.3%. So given our passion for vanilla, it seems peculiar that plain vanilla is going somehow synonymous for anything basic, bland, or blah. A plain vanilla wardrobe look lacks pizzazz. Plain vanilla technologies lack bells and whistles. Plain vanilla um, automobiles miss out on chrome, fins, slashy hood ornaments. And plain vanilla music is some sort of soulless drone that afflicts us in elevators. The truth is, though, that plain vanilla is anything but dull. Vanilla is a member of the orchid family, a sprawling um, 25,000 species plant. Vanilla is native of South and Central America and the Caribbean, and the first people to have cultivated it seem to have been the Totonics of Mexico's East Coast. The Aztecs acquired vanilla when they conquered uh, the Totonics in the 15th century, and then the Spanish in turn got it when they conquered the Aztecs. One source claims that it was introduced to Western Europe by Hernan Cortez through the uh, Though at the time it was eclipsed by his other American imports, which included jaguars, possums, and armadillos, and also rubber balls. Um, (laughs) Super fun. So we know the Aztecs drank chocolate. We've talked about that a lot, but they would put vanilla into their chocolate. And once Europeans got a hold of the stuff, 
Vanilla was thought as nothing more than an additive for chocolate until the 17th century when Hugh Morgan, a creative apothecary uh, in the employee of Queen Elizabeth I, invented chocolate-free, all-vanilla flavored sweetmeats. The queen adored them. And by the next century, the French were using vanilla to flavor ice creams, a treat discovered by Thomas Jefferson in the 1780s when he lived in Paris um, as American minister to France. He was so thrilled with it, he copied down a recipe, which that recipe uh, is now preserved in the Library of Congress. So vanilla came late to recipe books, according to food historian Waverly Root. The first known vanilla recipe appeared in 1805 in the book The Art of Cookery. So, yeah, pretty cool. Um, we will talk this week about uh, vanilla in a more cultural sense. We'll talk about unique ways to use it. Um, but in terms of witchcraft, vanilla is very warm, right? It's very warm. It's comforting. It's sophisticated. It, it's um, – sorry for the coughing allergies. I'm trying so hard. Um, it's sophisticated. And it's loving. Uh, you tend to use vanilla in spells where you need kind of that maturity, that hair, that warmth, that loving. So it's very often used in maybe like love spells that require something more of a um, mature relationship, a more sophisticated, loving, caring situation. Um, Kiki makes a wonderful little oil made out of um, vanilla beans and oh my gosh oh my gosh I can't believe I'm 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 blanking give me one second Tonka beans they are Tonka beans which I should have announced when we started we are doing this uh, the live show right now for the patreon members and Casey our lovely patreon member knew. Tonka beans. I also found out if you type into Google, bean kind of illegal, tonka bean also comes up, um, which is a really uh, wonderful, it has like a vanilla warmth to it. It's also kind of reminds me of almond in a way. It is kind of illegal. I forget the details on that. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss it another time. Um, but yeah, Kiki makes a wonderful oil with vanilla and tonka and it's ugh, ugh, gorgeous, delicious. I love it. Um, Okay, so we are all done. Thank you, Casey. I appreciate it. I was like, tea, Tonka. I, and I, I think I even said Tonka. No, I said, I don't know what I said. I don't know what, I don't know what was happening. Who, 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 who can say? Um, okay, moving into some headlines. This comes to us from iflscience.com. This is something one of our listeners posted on the Facebook group. I promise a Discord is coming. I promise, I promise. Um, but this is from our Facebook group. Bewitching mason bees fly around on broomsticks to keep their babies safe. The witchy ways of UK mason bees are revealed in the Grasslands episode of David Ardenbaugh's The BBC's Wild Isles this Sunday. Flying around the countryside on broomsticks might seem like an unnecessary party trick for winged insects, but the particular behavior taps into the extremes that these bees go in order to protect their developing offspring. The two-colored mason bee is arguably the best parent among Britain's 250 bee species. In episode 3 of Wild Isles, we follow one mother on her pursuit for the perfect nest for each of her eggs and find out why they've earned the nickname Witch Bee. 
The two colored mason bee are witch bee, whizzes around chalk grasslands looking for empty snail shells of the exact right size, explains producer Nicholas Gates in a statement. Like Goldilocks in her porridge testing, the female two-colored mason bee will check lots of empty shells in the grassland. Some are too big, some are too small or damaged, until she finds just the right one within to which lay her eggs. Snail egg nursery secured, the mason bee then has a second considerably more exhausting task on her hands. Blade by blade, stick by stick, she will disguise her snail shell nest egg with dried materials like old grass. The stacks can be built to 20 sticks high, and each one gets there by being individually flown by the mason bees, making her look as if she's flying around on a broomstick. If Jenny Beasley zooming around on a broom isn't enough to whet your appetite, the grassland episode has plenty more intrigue to lure you into the luscious UK countryside. So super cute. Little witch bees. I love it. All right, witches. I'm going to throw this over to our moon correspondent. And after this break, we will talk more. Hello to all of my astro friends. This is Serendipity, the Chicago astrologer, coming at you with your daily moon mantra for Monday, March 27th. The waxing crescent moon makes a social call in Gemini today. Here, the moon squares Neptune. It might be hard to keep our thinking clear today. Neptune is determined to muck things up, and muck things up it will. If you feel like your thought process is muddy, or that it's hard to rub two thoughts together, you're not imagining it. Neptune has a habit of making us feel disconnected and disconcerted. The only way to deal with Neptune directly is by using soft focus. If we decide we're not going to put too much pressure on today and allow things to come to us rather than trying to force things to happen, we may be able to release some of the frustration that's plaguing us. Your daily moon mantra is, I cannot do everything, but I can do something. This has been your daily moon mantra with Serendipity, the Chicago astrologer, signing off and reminding you that you are in charge of your own destiny. Humans have been obsessed with predicting the future ever since the dawn of civilization. We've watched the stars, gazed into crystal balls, thrown bones, red cards, and more, all in an effort to better understand ourselves and our place in this magical world. A Curious Future is your guidebook to a variety of divination practices. Did you know that you can divine with wine? Or that a simple pair of dice can give you prophetic insight? This book will help you predict the future through a variety of insightful and sometimes unusual techniques. A Curious Future by Kiki Dombrowski is available for order online from your local bookshop or wherever books are sold. All right, we are back. So this week we are doing a series. I try to do a series a month. Um, we did like love magic in February and we did our cryptids uh, back in October. We did our um, man like time management series in January. 
And this month, March, we are doing a series on magical animals. And you're like, Tanya, what is a magical animal? I don't know. Okay. I like, it's not a cryptid. So anyone who suggested cryptids, I'm not doing cryptids. We already did cryptids. And it's also not like regular animals. It's like this magic spot in between. And you're going to hear a few this week and be like, I don't know if that counts. Listen, I don't know either. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going with my heart and my soul on this one, on what is a magical animal. There's no definition. So we're just, we're trying our best. Um, but it's really fun. And also if you have any ideas for future series, if you're on Patreon, you know, every month we make, we make that post of like, what do you want me to talk about? You can add it there. If you're on the Facebook group, you can add it there. If you hate Facebook, same, um, you can email me, uh, whatever, get in contact with me. I'm kind of easy slash kind of hard to get in contact with. Um, but if you have ideas, let me know. So our first magical animal is the phoenix. So we're talking about the phoenix today. What is it? All I kind of know is fire and ash. So I'm hoping that we learn more today. Um, this comes to us from newworldencyclopedia.com. So the phoenix, as it is sometimes um, spelled, sometimes the O and the E are like attached. I don't know why. Um, has been enduring mythological symbol for millennia and across vastly different cultures. Despite such varieties of societies and times, the phoenix is consistently characterized as a bird with brightly colored plumage, which, after a long life, dies in a fire of its own making, only to rise from the ashes. From religious and naturalistic symbolism in ancient Egypt to secular symbols for armies, communities, and even societies, as well as often used literary symbol, the mythical bird's representation of death and rebirth seems to resonate with humankind's aspirations. I actually have some New Orleans, like New Orleans-specific town goss that kind of relates to the phoenix. If we have time, I will tell you about it. Um, although many cultures have their own interpretation of the phoenix, the differences and nuance are overshadowed by mythical creatures' more um, homogeneous characteristics. So the phoenix is always a bird, usually having plumage of colors corresponding to fire, so yellow, orange, red, gold. Uh, the most universal characteristic is the bird's ability to resurrect. Meow, meow, meow. Magical animal. Uh, living in a, living with a long life. The bird dies in a self-created fire, burning into a pile of ashes from which a phoenix chick is born, representing a uh, cycle process of life and death. Because it is reborn from its own death, the phoenix also took on the characteristics of regeneration and immortality. Um, there's another creature we will touch on at the end of the uh, week, I think it's Friday, that also is a big symbol of life and death. So if you think you can guess... On which this says, let me know. Let's see. So the earliest representation of the phoenix is found in ancient Egyptian Bennu bird, the name relating to the uh, verb meaning to rise brilliantly or to shine. Some researchers believe that a now extinct large heron was a possible real life inspiration for the Bennu. 
However, since the Banu, like all the other versions of the phoenix, is primarily a symbolic icon, the many mythological sources of the Banu in ancient Egypt culture reveal more about the civilization than the existence of a real bird, which we've talked about before, right? When we talked about cryptids and in specific, uh, like mermaids and uh, sirens, we talked about how often these mythological creatures can tell you a lot about what the what the civilization was worried about, fearing, or concerned, like what they deemed important at the time. So, one version of the myth says that Banu, the Banu bird burst forth from the heart of um, Osiris. And in more prevalent myths, the Banu created itself from fire and was burned on a holy tree in one of the sacred precincts of the Temple of Ra. The Banu was supposed to have rested on a sacred pillar that was known as the Benben Stone. At the end of its life cycle, the phoenix would build itself a nest of cinnamon twigs that it then ignited. Both nest and bird, bird burned fiercely and would be reduced to ashes, from which a new young phoenix arose. The new phoenix, embalmed in the ashes of the old, in an egg made of myrrh, and deposited in the Egyptian city um, of Heliopolis, which I know this is like a, a famous thing. I just don't know how to say it. Uh, the city of the sun in Greek. So the Persian also have the Huma, which is known as the bird of paradise, which is very similar. And then the Greek um, adapted the word Banu um, into their own word Phoenix. So we know Phoenix specifically comes from the Banu. So there is um, a piece at the Louvre Muse uh, Museum in Paris, France, which is a mosaic of roses and a phoenix. Pretty cool. We also see it a little bit in Judaism and um, Christianity. So in Judaism, the phoenix is known as the Mokham or the Hall. The story of the phoenix begins in the Garden of Eden when Eve fell, tempted by the serpent to eat the forbidden fruit. According to the Midrash Rabbah, uh, it, um, it upset, her, upset by her situation and jealous of creatures still innocent, Eve tempted all the other creatures of the garden to do the same. Only the hull, the phoenix, resisted. As a reward, the phoenix was given eternal life, living in peace for a thousand years and then being reborn. So the, scene, the phoenix also became a symbol of Christianity in uh, early literature, either from the ancient Hebrew legend or from the incorporation of Greek and Roman culture, or like a combination of both. So in any case, the ideology of the phoenix fit perfectly with the story of Christ. Um, again, resurrection, right? We just went through Easter, or it's coming, I don't know. Um, so we kind of see where it comes from. So let's see if I can find a little bit more about like the myths and kind of the symbolism a little bit more. Okay, so we found more from mythicscribes.com. So the rebirth from the ashes has become a fundamental part of the modern perception of the phoenix. It is the reason that cities like Chicago, which suffered from several large destructive fires in the 19th century, and most famously 1906, um, which was bombarded heavily in World War II and Coventry, which was um, bombarded in World War II, used the phoenix as an emblem. These cities and many others were literally turned to ash, and the people of them then rebuilt, were reborn into modern era. 
the rebirth from ashes has become central to the Phoenix myth, which elements um, were fundamental to the ancients left behind. The nest filled of the spices, the dedication of the parent's body uh, on the altar of the god. Even the phoenix uniqueness is discarded by some, making it a species instead of a singular bird um, that is entirely alone. This writer writes that one of the fa their favorite things about the mythology is the way it changes. In the ancient world, the phoenix was about the sun, about dealing with the body of a parent appropriately and the cycles that repeat. It came from the sun, or at least the east, and returned the parent body to the sun god at his altar. This is like back when you would like light bodies on fire after death, you know. It came, um, let's see. Every 500 year, oh yeah, when the sun god altered would come, would come every 500 years. So Pope, Pope Clement brought two elements mentioned in, in different accounts, frankincense and myrrh, to draw a parallel to Jesus. So apparently, according to this writer, the myrrh thing was like a Christian insertion to make it connect to Jesus just a little bit more. Um which makes sense. The idea of the phoenix being reborn, not merely from its parents' body, but from its ashes, was added at a time when the Roman Empire was tearing itself apart with civil wars, coups, assassination attempts. Um, so the Roman Empire was declining. So this imagery was also used in a uh, modern world by cities, which had quite literally burned to the ground. So just kind of talking about how the myth has changed, about how like the myrrh thing was really a Christian insertion. Um, also there's a, a, like an idea that the original myth, like the Phoenix wasn't the same bird, but just like a child bird, but they, they're saying that, you know, the Christians may have inserted that it was like the same bird. Um, interesting. And that like, yeah, I mean, and they were kind of using it during a time when like they really needed morale because like there were assassination attempts and um, stuff like this. And then, you know, we talked about Chicago. Yeah, this is really interesting. Uh, so another way they, uh, it changed and, and we are talking about Harry Potter. They're saying in some respects, things come full circle. One of the most famous depictions of a Phoenix in recent decades is that of the Harry Potter books. Uh, the author alludes to the earliest elements of myrrh and having phoenixes in her world capable of carrying great weights. Those weights are not, in the series, the phoenix parent, but the illusion is there. At the same time, there is the additional trait, such as healing, um, which isn't really a part of the ancient sources. So the phoenix is reinterpreted once again. So we kind of see the um, myth and the symbology of the phoenix uh, recreated and adapted and changed which is as myths go i think you know i think that's very normal so very interesting do we have time for me to talk about new orleans tea Ooh, not really but i'm gonna do it anyways okay listen so new orleans we have mardi gras right and then mardi gras we have crews which are mardi gras teams you know and they they're the ones who put on the parades so there was a very famous, like, all-female, there's a few all-famous female writing crews. And then this new one kind of popped up, like, well, not new, but, like, newer. And they were a really, really big deal. And they had, like, so many people on the waiting list because everyone wanted to be a part of this group, right? Well, 
they got in trouble. Basically, the owner got in trouble for some political stuff she said and did. And then they also found out that there was maybe some financial stuff they said and did and that maybe they weren't being as cool to their writers who are like paying the bills as they should have been. And they were like destroyed overnight. Like the city wanted nothing to do with them. So much so people have full events that are just about boycotting this group. Speaking of, so here's the thing, you need to have a certain number of writers or members to participate in Mardi Gras. And they used to have thousands and like they were the biggest all-female crew. And then now they officially only have the exact number they must have to even be involved. And many people suspect they have less than that. So why, how does this relate to the Phoenix? Okay. So there's this new crew, this new group, which um, is called the uh, Mystic Order of the Phoenix. And should I say that? Should I say that? I mean, we're talking about phoenixes. I don't know how much of this is like low key and how much of this is okay to talk about. Anyways, no one listens to the show. It's okay. Anyways, there's this new crew, which like all of the, which is believed to have come from the ashes of that old crew, which is why they call themselves the Phoenix, I'm guessing. And essentially it's about a bunch of the people, the members of the old one who kind of like got effed over by like the owners or the founders of the old crew no one likes. So... They were effed over by this woman. She said a lot of really shitty things politically. She did a lot of really shitty things and to her members and other people. And so some of these members formed their own group uh, called the Mystic Order of the Phoenix, which is meant to they, – they rose out of the ashes of that, sort of that situation. Absolutely wild. It is a very big topic here every Mardi Gras. Mm. Anyways, we are wrapping up this episode of The Witch Daily Show. I want to give a shout out to listener Judith, who I think is on the live right now. Hi, Judith. You bedazzled, beautiful Wendigo. I also want to give a shout out to Alina Rendazzo. Alina, you celestial, gorgeous gnome. Elaine Gonzalez. Elaine, you cunning, scrumptious sun goddess. And Nicole Lily. Nicole, you magical, dapper fire dragon. Thank you for so much for being... um, being Patreon members. I really appreciate it. And before we leave, we do have a card pull. Our card today is Higher Perception from the Metaphysical Cannabis Oracle. So they say, you are being called to help someone else with their vision. When held and shared, intentions can be multiplied by three, which gives more momentum to the mag- to the magnetism. Remember, though, not everyone will hold the intention for you so be discerning nice all right witches that's all i've got for you today don't forget any books decks headline sources anything we've referenced today can be found in the podcast episode description or witchpod.com and we will talk again tomorrow witches we hope you have a wonderful day full of joy and gentleness and confidence Links for this week's episodes, our website, Patreon, along with a free daily card pull can be found at witchpod.com. One stop for everything we talk about. 
Now, take one more deep breath and have a great day. I had an abortion when I was 15 years old in my home state of Arizona in 1994. It was not a decision that I made lightly, but I have never for one moment doubted that it was the right decision for me. But so much has changed in Arizona and many other states since then. If I were that same 15-year-old in Arizona today legally, I would have to get parental consent. I would be forced to undergo a medically unnecessary ultrasound, go to a state-mandated in-person counseling session designed solely to shame me into changing my mind, and then take a state-mandated 24-hour time out to make sure I really know what I wanted. And finally, I would be forced to give the state a reason why. Well, here is mine. It is my body, not the state's. Women and their doctors are the ones that are in the best position to make informed decisions about what is best for them no one else. No bill that criminalizes abortion will stop anyone from making this incredibly painful decision. These bans will not stop abortion from happening, but they will drive women and girls and people into the shadows, which is what this has always been about, shaming and controlling women's bodies. In the week after I shared my story on my show, women were coming up to me in the street, in the supermarket, at my gym, with tears in their eyes, thanking me for my bravery. But the word brave didn't sit right with me. Why is it brave to speak to an experience that millions of people around the world throughout history have gone through? And then I realized it is considered brave because as women, we have been taught to feel shame about our bodies since birth. I am so sad that we have to sit here in front of a row of politicians and give deeply personal statements because the why doesn't matter, it should not matter. I am a human being that deserves autonomy in this country that calls itself free, and choices that a human being makes about their own bodies should not be legislated by strangers who can't possibly know or understand each individual circumstances or beliefs. I'm here today to help destigmatize a legitimate medical procedure and continue to encourage women not to allow themselves to be shamed for their choices. And finally, I am here today for my two little girls, Birdie and Cricket. My dream for them is that they will live in a world in which women are truly equal with complete control over their own reproductive health. That is the dream I hold for all people, regardless of their privilege or parents or what state they live in. That dream is slipping further and further from reality with every ban passed. I hope that you, our elected leaders, can help us reverse the tide. Thank you. I look forward to today's discussion.